0: Well, if we could, this evening with the Lord's help, uh, turn back to that portion of scripture that we read in Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, and we'll read again from verse 31, Romans 8 and verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, neither height, nor depth, nor any other creature is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Last Lord's Day, we began by asking the question, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? And, as I mentioned last week, this question is relevant uh, to all of us, uh, because... Some of us in here are this evening, we, we are already Christians. We're already followers of Jesus Christ. We profess the name of Jesus Christ. But there are others in here this evening of whom I'm quite sure would like to be a Christian. And so we ask the question, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? And by looking at the confession of a Christian from the words of the Apostle Paul In Galatians 2, verse 20, we saw that a Christian is not just someone who is good living, in which they've stopped drinking and they've stopped getting drunk and going out at the weekend and and, uh, they've cut out all the bad language. And a Christian is not just someone who attends church, both ends on the Lord's Day, and goes to the prayer meeting and reads their Bible and spends time in prayer. Of course, these things are beneficial for a Christian and ought to be part and partial of a Christian's life. But when Paul spoke from his own experience and gave his confession of a Christian, he said that Christianity isn't based on the outward appearance and our outward acts of religious righteousness. No, he says, Christianity isn't about what we do. Christianity is all about what Jesus has done for us. Christianity is all about what Jesus has done. And that's why Paul confessed to the Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so last Lord's Day, we asked the question, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? But this evening, I would like us to ask the question, why? Why? Why should I become a Christian? Why should I become a Christian? And Before we go any further, I suppose the simple answer to this question, why should I become a Christian? The simple answer would be to say that if you die without Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will go to hell. If you die without Christ as your Savior, you will experience the condemnation of And the wrath of God which is due to you because of your sin. The sin that you have committed. Therefore the simple reason and the most obvious reason why you should become a Christian. Is that as a sinner without Christ you are going to hell. But I want to say that although the fear of going to hell is the most obvious reason for becoming a Christian. I think it looks at our question from a negative perspective. Because becoming a Christian is not only about what you're being saved from, it's also about what you're being saved to. And when we come to Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul is touching on that exact subject, what we're being saved from and what we're being saved to. In fact, Paul touches upon every aspect of the Christian life in the letter to the Romans. He covers every area of Christian theology and doctrine in this one letter. And he does so because Paul, he never managed to reach the church in Rome. He visited many other churches and he planted many other churches and he encouraged many of the Lord's people in different regions. But Paul never made it to Rome to meet the Roman Christians there. Yes, Paul made it to Rome as a prisoner. But he never made it to Rome as a preacher. And because his wish was to visit the church in Rome, because it was never fulfilled, Paul decided, he decided to write to them. And instead of explaining the beauty of the gospel and the wonder of being a Christian in person, he did it with his pen. And what Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome is, it's so full and so precious that we ought to read it and digest the depth of his teaching. And it was uh, the reformer, Martin Luther, he said about the book of Romans, he said that it can never be read or considered too much or too well. And the more it is handled, the more delightful it becomes and the better it tastes. A Luther statement, it's certainly applicable to the words that we find in Romans chapter 8. Because for many a Christian, down throughout the centuries of the church, they have found the words of of Romans 8 to be what you could call sweeter than honey. And none more so than the words that we are considering this evening because in these closing remarks of Romans chapter 8, Paul is giving this summary of what he's been teaching throughout chapter 7 and throughout chapter 8. And Paul does so by asking all these He concludes by asking all these rhetorical questions. But each rhetorical question which Paul asks, it only seeks to emphasize why everyone should become a Christian. And I believe that there are four reasons Paul gives as to why everyone should become a Christian. And so let's ask our question. Why should I become a Christian? Why should I become a Christian? And Paul says... Because when you become a Christian, there is no hesitation. There's no allegation. There's no condemnation. And there's no separation. When you become a Christian, there is no hesitation, no allegation, no condemnation, and no separation. So we'll look at these this evening. First of all, no hesitation. When you become a Christian, there is no hesitation. That's what Paul talks about in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And by asking the first question here, when he says, what then shall we say to these things? Paul is seeking to to link all that he has said throughout chapter 7 and chapter 8, and he's linking it all to this concluding summary of rhetorical questions. And in this, Paul wants to re-emphasize to us the glorious teaching of what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. Because when Paul considers the beauty of the gospel and the wonder of of being a Christian, he says without any hesitation, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And without even trying to look at this rhetorical question any further, we have to say it's a bold statement. It's a bold statement and it's a bold statement because there is no hesitation on Paul's part as to who is on his side. There's no hesitation and there ought to be no hesitation if you're a Christian as to who is on our side. There ought to be no question. No hesitation, no apprehension, no reservation, no suspicion, no doubt whatsoever in your mind as to who is on our side and as to who is for us and who is with us and who is in us. There's got to be no hesitation but the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is with us. He is the one who is in us. He is the one who is for us. And as a Christian there ought to be this boldness. To say without hesitation, if God is for me, who can be against me? And was that not the great confession of the psalmist when we were just singing in Psalm 46? That wonderful psalm which draws our attention away from self and away from circumstances and away from people and it it points us. To the God who is our refuge and our strength and an ever-present help, even in times of trouble. Because even when the psalmist was faced with a situation of war and entering into the battlefield, where he knew there would be enemies, where the arrows would be fired and, and the spears would be thrown and the swords would be crossed. But what's so beautiful about Psalm 46 is that the psalmist confesses that his victory is all because of the Lord. As he concluded the psalm we were just singing he said our God who is the Lord of hosts is still upon our side the God of Jacob our refuge forever will abide. My Christian friend what better words could remind us of our privileged position tonight. What better words could assure us and reassure us that our God is still with us after all that we've been through. What better words could affirm to us that it's not because of what we have done that he's on our side. It's not because of the way we have been that he's on our side. It's not because of our righteousness or our faithfulness that he is on our side. But it's all because of what Jesus has done for us. Our God, he says, who is the Lord of hosts, he's still upon our side. My friend, our God is for us. And if he is for us, then who can be against us? And what enemy? What enemy is able to stand and to withstand the arm that's full of power and the hand that's great in might? What enemy? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? And of course there are many things and many people who can be against us. And it's not that they can be against us. More often than not, they are against us. And you know, theology often speaks of the Christians' three greatest enemies. The world, the flesh and the devil. The world is an enemy because Christianity is an offence to the world. Christianity is, and the message of, of Jesus Christ is against the ethos of the world. And the world is against us because it wants us to draw, be drawn away from Jesus and conform to its standards and its way of living and its understanding of God. The world wants us to be like them. But Jesus says about his followers you are not of the world. I have called you out of the world because the world doesn't know me. And the Bible solemnly reminds us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But it's not only the world that's against us. The flesh Is against us too. Because the problem is not only from without. The problem is also from within. Where we seek to gratify the desires of the flesh. And we fall into temptation. And we're drawn away from the things of God. And we live for pleasure. And for gain. And for wealth. And for status. And for popularity. And for comfort. And for entertainment. Where we're being entertained to death. And what an enemy the flesh is. Because it causes us to spend our years thinking that we will live forever. It makes us think we'll live on and on and on. But if that wasn't enough, the enemy of our soul spends his time trying time, time to convince us that we have plenty of time. The devil makes it his business to attack All our weaknesses and reveal our sins and our failings and our lack of self-control. The devil, he's described in scripture as a roaring lion that seeks to devour us and make us slip up and trip up at every hurdle. My friend, what enemies we have. The world, the flesh and the devil. But we all know there's another enemy. And we've become all too familiar with this enemy in our community. The last enemy, he's called death. And it's a powerful enemy. It's an enemy that steals, an enemy that kills, an enemy that destroys. And it often appears on our doorstep without any prior warning to us, but... The wonder of all these enemies is that if God is for us, who can be against us? What are these enemies if God is for us? These enemies have no hold over us if God is for us. And you know, if anyone knew this in their own experience, it was David. If anyone knew that the Lord was upon his side and constantly with him, it was David. He was the man who faced Goliath in his youth with only a sling and a stone. He was a man of war who entered many battles with the Lord on his side. And we saw that in our opening item of praise in Psalm 27. David had no hesitation as to who was on his side when he faced all his enemies. He said against me though and host in camp my heart. Yet fearless is. Though war against me rise, I will be confident in this. David had no hesitation that the Lord was with him. Whoever or whatever he was going to face, there was no apprehension. There was no doubt in his mind because he had complete confidence and assurance of victory. Not because of himself, but all because of the Lord. And we know he had confidence because we're given the backdrop of David's testimony in the opening words of the psalm. We know he had confidence because he opens the psalm and says, The Lord He's my light. He's my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord He's the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? My friend, David's hope and confidence was based entirely upon the Emmanuel, God with us. And that's the only place where our hope and confidence ought to be as Christians. Not in self, not in circumstance, not in, in others, but in the Emmanuel, God with us. And that's what Paul is st- stressing to us here. That for the Christian, if God is for us, if God is with us, if God is in us, if God is beside us, then who in all creation can be against us? And with no hesitation whatsoever, the Christian says, no. No one can be against us. No one. Why should I become a Christian? Because when you become a Christian, you'll have no hesitation that God is for you. And if God is for you, then who can be against you? But secondly, when you become a Christian, you will have no allegation. You will have no allegation. If you look at verse 33, Paul asks, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So Paul's second rhetorical question seeks to draw our attention to our position, our standing before God as Christians. In other words, how does God view us because of what Jesus Christ has done? And the language which Paul is using, it's legal language, it's legal terms, it's the language of the courtroom. And Paul often uses language of the courtroom in order to express our our standing, our position before God. And so when Paul asks this rhetorical question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect, his point was that no one can. No one can. No allegation can be made against one of the Lord's people. But if any allegation was to be made, the allegation would come from the law of God. It would come from the law of God. Just as it would be with the laws of our land. Any allegation that was to be made against us, the basis of the charge against us or the allegation against us would be that we have broken the law. And because we've broken the law, the law is accusing us of our wrongdoing. And Paul says to us in chapter 7 that that was always the intention of the law of God. It was graciously given to Moses at Mount Sinai in order that the Lord's people would know the holiness of God and the holy standard which God had set. The law was to be the manual for, for the Lord's people to live by. It was to give them boundaries and direction and guidance, not to oppress them, but it was for their own good and for their own protection. But the purpose of the law was not only to show us how holy God is, It's also to show us how sinful we are. The law was to be a light to illuminate our sin and show us our wrongdoing. The law was to show us how much we've sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's what Paul says in in chapter 7. He says, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, thou shalt not covet and Paul goes on to say that it was through the law that he came to realize how sinful he was. Because the law of God, the word of God, the Bible, it revealed his nature. It revealed his nature that it's a fallen nature. The law of God, the Bible, it revealed his heart. That his heart is deceitful, above all things, desperately wicked. The law of God, the Bible, it revealed his mind. That his mind is corrupt with evil thoughts and intentions that he wouldn't dare share with anyone. And having considered the extent of the law and what the, the Bible is saying to him and the power of the law. And the fact that it reveals who he really was before a holy God. And with all these accusations and all these allegations that the Bible was making against him. All Paul could say by the end of chapter 7 was, O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Who shall deliver me? He realised how far short he'd come. But it was then that Paul went on to give the answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But what's interesting about Paul's question here. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The word for charge or allegation or accusation. It's the word imputation. Which means that it's something that is attributed to us. Therefore Paul is asking who shall impute sin? Who shall attribute sin against us? Who's able to bring any charge against God's people? Who's able to present their allegation to God? Who's the judge of all the earth? Who's able to do it when God is the one who justifies? And what Paul is stressing to us is that our deliverance from this body of death, our deliverance from the power of sin and the the power of the law, it's all because of Jesus Christ. Paul was asking, who shall deliver me? Who shall deliver me from this body of death? And yet Paul is saying here in his conclusion in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And of all the places for Paul to bring us. Paul brings us right back to the cross. And he tells us that the cross, it's the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. He tells us the cross is the message of salvation, Christ and him crucified. Because upon the cross hung the greatest substitute. Upon the cross was the greatest transaction that ever took place. Because as we ask who shall deliver us from this body of death, Paul is saying, look to Calvary. Look to Calvary. He delivered him. He delivered him. The Father did not spare his own Son, his only begotten Son, the Son of his own bosom, he says. He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's given us all things, my friend. He's given us his grace. He's given us his mercy, he's given us his love, he's given us his assurance, all his promises, he's given us his peace. But in order to be justified, he has given to us his righteousness. In order to be justified, he's given to us his righteousness. And is that not what Paul emphasized to the Corinthian church? He said, for he made him The one at Calvary. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And my friend, that was Calvary's great transaction. Because at Calvary, the allegation of the law. And the imputation of sin. The sin that was attributed to us by nature. It was attributed to Jesus Christ. At Calvary, it was imputed to Jesus Christ at Calvary. And the righteousness that belonged to him, the righteousness which fulfills every requirement and allegation of the law of God, it was imputed to us. It was attributed to us. So that our standing in Christ as those who are Christians, those who follow the Lord, our standing is that no allegation can be made against us. No allegation whatsoever. We stand blameless. And that's what it means to be justified before a holy God. The catechism, read it. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ Imputed to us and received by faith alone. By faith alone. My friend, there is no allegation because of Christ's imputation. No allegation because of Christ's imputation. Why should I become a Christian? Because when you become a Christian, there's no hesitation. God is for me. When you become a Christian, no allegation. I stand in his righteousness. But thirdly, there is no condemnation. No condemnation. Paul asks in verse 34 who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who's at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us. So Paul's third rhetorical question, it follows on very closely from what he has just said, because with no allegation coming from the law able to be brought against a Christian due to God's act of, of gracious act of, of justification, of imputing righteousness, there is now not only no allegation. There is also now no condemnation. And this also follows on from what Paul was saying at the end of of chapter 7. Paul was asking, who shall deliver me from this this body of death? Who will justify me before a holy God? And Paul says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He is the one. He's the one who brings justification. He's the one who delivers delivers us from from sin. And he imputes his righteousness to us and because there is now no allegation Paul begins chapter 8 with those beautiful words there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus my friend do these words not just overflow with assurance there is therefore now No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And it doesn't matter how many times you repeat them to yourself. It's like they're being heard for the first time. And they're reminding us of our privileged position as the people of God. That Jesus is able to take the vilest of sinners and the most wretched people and the most hardened of of criminals... And he's able to present them as righteous before a holy God. And if God is able to do that with them, he's certainly able to do it with your deceitful uh, deceitful and sinful heart. My friend, don't ever think that because you aren't good enough, that the Lord won't save you. Don't ever think that because... You aren't righteous enough by your own doing that the Lord will somehow overlook you. Don't ever think that because you have a checkered past and maybe you have sins that you would never want anyone else to know about. Don't ever think that the Lord will pass you by. Not at all. Not at all. My dear friend, don't ever think that salvation is for everyone else but for you. Because that's not true. Salvation is for you. The offer of salvation is offered to whosoever. Which means it has your name on it too. The Lord is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. The Lord doesn't want you to go to hell. The Lord wants you to be saved. Why else would he send his son into the world to die upon a cross? And if you were the only person in all the world who was going to be saved, he would still send his son to the cross. Because his love for you is so deep and so secure that when you trust in him, you're given the all-encompassing assurance. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus My friend, if you know that Jesus Christ gave his life for you. If you know you can say that Jesus is mine and I am his. If you know Jesus Christ died for your sins. Then why do you think he's going to turn around and condemn you? Why do you doubt that you're saved? Why do you question the salvation of the Lord? But maybe you don't doubt what Jesus has done. Maybe you doubt because of what you have done. You doubt your own obedience and your own faithfulness to Jesus. Because every time you sin and every time you fall into temptation or every time you conform to the pressures of the world... You may think, well, I've blown it now. It's all over. You say, how can Jesus love me now? How can Jesus forgive me for this blunder and this mistake? How can I be restored after this? But on top of that, Satan comes and he tells you all the lies of the day. You're you're far too sinful to be a Christian. You don't deserve forgiveness. You don't deserve to be saved. But don't you just love the words of Psalm 130? Don't you just love singing them? Where the psalmist is pouring out his heart before God and repenting because of his sin. and He's saying, Lord, from the depths to thee I cried. My voice, Lord, do thou hear. Unto my supplications voice give an attentive ear. But then the Psalmist he asks that all-important question Lord, who shall stand? If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquity? Who could stand? Not one of us. We're all guilty, we're all condemned, we're all we've all fallen short. But the wonder is that the psalmist knew who could stand. And who could stand on his behalf. He knew that he had a mediator between God and himself he knew that he had an advocate with the father because he says but yet with thee forgiveness is that feared thou mayest be and that's what paul is stressing to us here who is he who condemns who is able to condemn us who is able to accuse us for our sin it is christ who died But he not only died, he says, he's also risen again and he's now at the right hand of God, the Father, making intercession for us. He's acting as our representative before a holy God. He's our mediator between us and God. He's our advocate with the Father. He is standing on our behalf because he is Jesus Christ the righteous. Who shall stand? Who shall stand, my friend? Jesus is standing on our behalf. Standing on our behalf. And in him there is therefore now no condemnation. Not now and not ever. Is it any wonder... That the hymn writer said, man of sorrows. What a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Guilty, helpless, lost were we, blameless. Lamb of God was he, sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Hallelujah, what a saviour. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No condemnation. Why should I become a Christian? Because when you become a Christian, there is no hesitation. God is for me. When you become a Christian, there's no allegation. I'm in Christ's righteousness. When you become a Christian, there's no condemnation he was condemned for me and lastly and briefly when you become a Christian there is no separation there is no separation Paul says in verse 35 he asks who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come. Neither height nor depth nor any other creature is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so throughout the past couple of chapters Paul has been creating this picture he's been creating this picture in order to emphasize how secure the christian's salvation is because it's based entirely upon the work of jesus christ and so paul concludes this section as he concludes it he does so by by asking the all-important question who shall separate us from the love of christ and for paul such a question it need not be answered Because there is nothing in all the world that is able to separate the Christian from the love of Jesus Christ. But what Paul is drawing upon is is a theme which uh, we touched on last week. The theme of our union with Christ. That union or that connection which exists between Jesus Christ in heaven and the Christian here on earth. And in our, our union with Christ, Christ is the fountainhead and from him flows all the spiritual blessings to us. The blessings of repentance and faith and pardon and justification. Adoption, sanctification, perseverance and then finally glorification. And that's what Paul has been talking about throughout chapter 8. He's been talking about all these, these spiritual blessings that flow from Jesus Christ. Because he says even from 20, verse 28 onwards... He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are the called, according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And what Paul is saying is that everything is Encapsulated, everything is bound up in the Christian's union with Christ. There is nothing that can separate us from him. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But just to be clear, and to make sure that we understand how glorious this union with Christ is, this connection to Christ that is unbreakable, Paul asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation separate us from the love of Christ? No. Shall distress? No. Shall persecution? No. Shall famine? No. Shall nakedness? No. Shall peril or danger? No. Shall sword? No. No, no, no. Nothing, he says, nothing is able to separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. But what's interesting is that Paul then quotes from Psalm 44. He says, as it is in verse 36, As it is written, then he quotes Psalm 44, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now Psalm 44 is a lament. It's a psalm in which the psalmist is crying. He's weeping over his circumstances. He's crying to God because the land of Israel has been invaded by the Babylonians. The enemy has come. The enemy has invaded. And in that invasion, the Israelites, they experienced tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and the sword. And if we were to look at their circumstances... If we were to be onlookers looking at the situation that the psalmist was was writing about, we would say, well, God is not for you. God is not for you. We would think that they're being accounted as sheep for the slaughter. But in reality, the hope of the psalmist and the hope of every Christian is in the fact that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. It endures forever and that's how the psalmist concluded his lament because he said, rise up come to our help redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And that's the same cue that Paul took when he concluded this chapter. He said, in all these things In all our tribulation, in all our distress, in all our persecution, in all our famine, in all our nakedness, in all our peril, in all our our experiences of the sword, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And by the time Paul has finished considering every spiritual blessing we receive as Christians who are united to Jesus Christ, Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, neither height, nor depth, nor any other creature is able to, be, to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm persuaded, he says. Therefore the only question left to ask... Is are you persuaded? Are you persuaded to become a Christian? I hope that you're not almost persuaded to become a Christian. But fully persuaded. That if you were to become a Christian tonight. You would have no hesitation. Because God is for you. If you were to become a Christian tonight, you would have no allegation because you're justified through the righteousness of Christ. If you were to become a Christian tonight you would have no condemnation because there is no condemnation to those who are standing in Jesus Christ. And if you were to become a Christian tonight, you are promised no separation. Not now, not ever, in time or in eternity. Nothing will ever separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. Why should I become a Christian? Why should I become a Christian? Maybe the question should have been, why would you not want To become a Christian. Why would you not want. To become a Christian. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. O Lord our gracious God. We stand in awe. At the wonder of what thou hast done. And Lord we thank and we praise thee. That as the psalmist said. Yet with thee forgiveness is that fear thou mayest be, all that we would have the fear of the Lord in our hearts, which is the beginning of wisdom, the wisdom of God, Christ, and him crucified. Lord, bless thy word to us. May it find lodgment in our heart that we may be able to answer that question honestly and before a God who can see our heart. Lord, do us good, then we pray. Bless us in the week that lies ahead. A week again that is unknown to us. But we commit this week into thy care and thy keeping. Go before us then, we ask, and do us good. For Jesus' sake. Amen. We shall conclude by singing in Psalm 44. A psalm that was quoted in Romans 8. Psalm 44, that's in the sing Psalms version on page 56, singing from verse 20 down to the end of the psalm. (coughs) Psalm 44 from verse 20. If we forgot God's name, or two false gods had stretched our hands, would God not know, for he our hearts and secrets understands, And yet it is for your own sake. We face death all the day. We reckon like the sheep that are. For slaughter led away. Awake, O Lord, arise from sleep. Do not reject your folk. Why hide your face and quite forget our pain and cruel yoke? For we've been humbled to the dust, laid prostrate on the ground. Rise, help, redeem. Because within your covenant love we are found. We will sing these verses to God's place.